2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Aaron Lammer, back from Wisconsin. I don't even know where Evan is. Evan's in Brazil. You're coming back. His, his family is in shambles. <laughs> We're falling apart, man. We're falling apart. Who do you have on the show this week while I was gone? Uh, I talked to Emma Carmichael. I talked to ah, Emma yes. Carmichael. She's the editor-in-chief of Jezebel. Uh, she came in on a, a Friday afternoon, Friday evening, long week of work. It was great. I really enjoyed talking to her. That is a... I, I actually didn't really understand what that job is. I don't, I, I'm like what, I'm I didn't, looking, looking forward to learning. I haven't. I'm I'm with you. I'm with the audience in that I have not heard this episode. Yeah, I just I was interested. Like, what what does that mean? If you're the editor, <laughs> you're the editor. Sorry. I just kind of fucking made out with my mic. <laughs> <laughs> you almost just fell asleep on your mic. Anyway, I was interested in uh, what Emma's day is like, and uh, it's fascinating. Yeah. And she's done sports-related stuff before this. She was at Deadspin. Yeah. Uh, she took over uh, for Edith Zimmerman at the Hairpin. She yeah. ran the Hairpin. And she's like 26 and has had many, many high-profile internet jobs. Uh, we have a sponsor. It's Tiny Letter from the good people at MailChimp. It's a really easy way to get I, – I don't even like to use the word newsletter because it sounds too formal. It's just like a way to send – an email out to the people who care about what's going on with you, and then you can subscribe to some of theirs. It's it's very simple. It, it feels a lot lighter than the internet right now, and we thank them for their sponsorship. Thank you, Tiny Letter. I just got, I just read before we sat down, a great Tiny Letter from Laura Olin. Go oh, find yeah. Laura Olin's Tiny Letter. It's fantastic. The theme changes every week. It's great. Uh, here's Max with Emma Carmichael. Hello, Emma Carmichael. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. You said you had a long week. I had a long week, and now it's over, and I'm drinking a beer, and it's all good. Nice to be out of the office. Very good to be out of the office, or the blogging cave that Gawker is located in. <laughs> I'm interested in the blogging cave. I have questions for you about the blogging cave. Yeah. But uh, we'll get to them later. I feel like uh, I should disclose something, which is that um, this is the first time that you and I have like sat down and like had a beer and talked uh, shop. Sure. But we've played basketball many times, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you have outplayed me in all of those. Is that true? That's true. I think that might be true. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> that's definitely no, I'm just true. kidding. Uh, yes, for many years. For many years, at yeah. At this point, yeah. And uh, it's good to uh, uh, be sitting with you but not playing basketball because yeah. it's like usually pretty humiliating to play basketball. <laughs> and I think that when we started playing basketball, you were writing for Deadspin. Yeah, that's true. And I do not know how you ended up at Deadspin. So that is my first question. How did you end up at Deadspin? Uh, Yeah, I ended up at Deadspin in fall 2010 as an intern. And I had just moved to New York and I was working. I did PR for the Parks Department at the time. 
as my first job here. Well, like, how far out of college were you? I had graduated in May, so it was like five months out, I guess, four months out. That's pretty that impressive point. that you got. That's like, I feel like that's a good job. It was right a good job. Yeah, it was great. It it was like very much a nine to five. And are, are there a lot of like scandals in the park department that you need to many, handle PR wise? No. It's like why didn't the leaves get picked up today? Is like the calls you take. Uh, <laughs> We all had a borough, and my borough was Staten Island, so I spent quite a bit of time in Staten Island during that stretch of my life. <laughs> how like how close did that hue to like parks and recreation? I feel like I had, now have this template for what working in a parks department would be. Yeah, like. we had some characters. I might leave it at that. <laughs> it was it was a great job. It was like every day you would like like I did the the morning newsletter for the whole parks department, which is called the Daily Plant. Nice. And I would do like a little write up about like use a press release and or do an interview with someone. And then we also had to do a quote of the day. So like every morning at nine a.m. I was like on like inspirational quote websites, like <laughs> looking for like a new bullshit quote that I hadn't used yet. So it was a natural transition to Deadspin, obviously. <laughs> of course. Uh, but I think I at some point like that summer I I was applying to jobs in New York, a bunch of jobs and trying to get a writing inter- internship and a friend from college was at a gawker party and I ended up going cuz she knew I kind of wanted to get into writing and gave my I guess no I got a business card from Scott Kidder who's the at the time was like the operations guy at Gawker and I told him like maybe a little drunkenly that Deadspin needed a stronger female presence <laughs> or any female presence or any well they had Katie Baker at the right, time right, right. Katie Bakes and he got me in touch with AJ and I came in for an interview with AJ a week later, which was to this day still the weirdest interview of my life. <laughs> How come? I mean, it just wasn't. He was like, "So you write? Like you like sports? Can you do this thing like you know, 8 p.m. on every night? Like it wasn't really even an interview." And then like a week later or something, they had me start on nights, and I hadn't even like blogged before or really looked at Deadspin that much before. So it was a really like immediate education. And, and you were doing it from home. Yeah, I would. I did this parks job. So it was like then, inspirational quotes in the morning. Yeah, and, and then, then I'd like, come home and like snarky sports. Literally, blog in the night. like one of my first blog posts was about like Brett Favre's penis, you know. <laughs> and I didn't really tell anyone at work because it was like it felt very much like this like weird night gig, like after hours thing <laughs> right. that like they couldn't know about. Right when they broke the Brett Favre story is when I started. Basically, it's a crazy time to be there. Yeah. At that point, what were your writing aspirations? I mean, if like you showed up wanting to be a writer. What kind of writing did you want to be doing? I wanted to be doing sports writing. That's like what I had kind of been doing for a while. My like my sports writing transition was like in high school. I did the sports section of the newspaper because no one wanted to do it, mm-hmm. and I liked sports and I played sports. Um, and then in college, Were I you went, like covering your own team. Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, in college, I really did. I mean, our high school newspaper was like really sad. But uh, in in college, I went to the newspaper meeting. And the only, like, editor who didn't have any interested, like, freshman was the sports guy. And he was like, will you please just, like, cover the Ultimate Frisbee team or something, you know? (laughs) And so I started doing that. And then I was on the basketball team. And I was also, uh, (laughs) my, like, campus job, whatever my work-study job, was um, the sports information office. And the women's basketball team, which I was a member of, was so bad that no one wanted to cover it. And so it came down to me. And so after (laughs) these games that we would lose by, like, like easy 20 30 40 points i would like go up to like the sad office and like write the game recaps and have to put this like like, positive spin on it (laughs) interview your coach never that it was like very i mean it was no one really wanted color with those stories it was just like the struggling vaster women's you know vaster women's basketball team lost another game brutal but they had would you like take it easy on yourself at least (laughs) sort of i had one game where i um the I missed, basketball team lost by 40, but Carmichael yeah, you know, had a beautiful jumper a really, from the corner. This is a really tragic story. Is like we were so bad my freshman year. I think we won 
we didn't win any league games. And our last game of the season, which was senior day, we had one senior on the team, and she was this beloved center. And it was our last chance to get her like a win before she left Vassar. Oh, no. And I was like the backup forward, and our other forward fouled out like late in the game. And I came in, long story short, like missed the buzzer beater, wide open layup that would have won the game, and like blew it. And I had to go write that game. And I had to be like, and Emma Carmichael (laughs) missed the basket that would have given the Brewers their only win of the season. (laughs) So after that, I think there was like only, it could only go up. (laughs) Like that's a low sports writing moment. (laughs) That's pretty rough. Like by Emma Carmichael at the end, you know. You you didn't want to like uh, go no byline on that one? I don't remember if I had a byline. Thankfully, I think this is all lost to the internet ether now, so... And then I had these summer internships that were all sports writing related. Yeah. I, I was an uh, intern at like the Burlington Free Press one summer, which was kind of like, I'm from Brattleboro, Vermont, so it was like the local big paper. And then the next summer, I or no, that same summer, I got kind of a great connection that got me to be a researcher on NBC Olympics. Oh, that's um, cool. And so I, I was in New York for the first time, and we had this crazy schedule on Beijing time, because um, it was 08. Right, that was like going into the office at whatever, like one in the morning. Yeah, we would. I, my shift was 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. It was really a weird time, and we were in the SNL studios. It was like a very surreal experience. And then the summer after that, I was an intern for Sports Illustrated for kids. Nice. <laughs> so the goal was to be doing sports writing, and you'd been doing it for a while, and mm-hmm. then you end up at Deadspin. Hadn't even really been reading Deadspin, and Deadspin. Uh, among other things, posts a picture of Brett Favre's dick. Yes. And becomes a big story. Yes. Were you trying to do like big lofty sports writing? Like, were you like, you know, were you interested in like the bonus piece in Sports Illustrated? What What did you want to be doing? I don't know that I had that many ambitions at that point. It was like interesting enough to me that like you could see how many people were reading your articles, you know, like it was like an immediate kind of like relevancy that I wasn't really expecting. Like I wasn't expecting that kind of stage at that point I kind of lucked out in a weird way because the day before I was supposed to have my first pitch or my first uh, shift on at Deadspin it was actually my my very first day at the parks department and that night that Inez science story broke do you remember this it was when like the Jets I think maybe it was the Jets were like harassing this this female sports reporter and it was like this big news story and I couldn't really sleep and I like ended up writing this kind of I, I can't even like go back and read it now, but like I wrote this kind of like screedy piece about like how I think it was Inez Science, you make me want to stop trying or something like that. <laughs> and they published it the next day while I was like at the parks department and like <laughs> looking for inspirational quotes. Yeah, exactly. My first day, and that did really well, and I think that helped me a lot, kind of in the long term, because I don't think they were taking me that seriously as a candidate <laughs> before that. <laughs> How often during your time there did you end up gravitating towards issues around women in sports? I think quite a bit. With most stories that I was writing, if that element wasn't already in it, it was like my approach to the story anyway. Mm -hmm. There were a few stories that fall that I kind of thought to myself, like, I should take advantage of my perspective here, which I think is like a really important thing if you're a woman who wants to write about sports, because so many men write about sports. It's like actually refreshing and different to have a woman right. <laughs> writing. And so that that fall, for example, I think it was Maya Moore's stretch with UConn when they like didn't lose a single game. And it was when Gino Ariyama and um, Pat Summit were basically refusing to play each other. So I had these like moments where I felt like I had this like 
at least like background or institutional knowledge that I could have something to say. Yeah. Um, and that no one else on Deadspin would have said, really. A thing that comes up again and again on the show is people learning how to do this stuff like relatively anonymously, mm-hmm. like at small papers, you know, uh-huh. and like, <laughs> and basically being able to, yeah, learn how to do it without a ton of people watching. And it sounds like pretty quickly you had a bunch of people watching. Like, I, I, I'm interested in just in what that was like, sort of like learning how to do it in public with a bunch of like pretty like wily commenters. Well, and like dudes, right? Like yeah. <laughs> also. <laughs> Plus also dudes. Yeah. It was an education. And I am really grateful that I learned on the fly in a lot of ways because I really had no choice but to like get better. And I like could see, you know, what headlines sucked and like what angles or approaches were like useless to this audience. So I think the real early education was like learning the Deadspin audience and what their expectations were. And like, they're not light, you know, like they they take their role as commenters very seriously and they're sort of brilliant in a like awful way. So I learned a lot early on. I also, though, I think being a like very young woman who was writing for this stage of like very, (laughs) this like very large audience of very dedicated readers who all were men. (laughs) It was rough. It was like, I got a lot of, I think I just got like a very brisk education in, I don't want to say sexism, but just like how my my shit would be received, basically. Uh Um, How how was it received? I mean, there was plenty of supportive stuff, but then there were also a lot of emails that were just like very dismissive, either very dismissive, like you should be making a sandwich, like stupid shit, or like condescending like I know you're just a little girl you know like that kind of stuff and then the flip side was like kind of leery come-ons and stuff one thing I think a lot about now that I'm writing about writing for women or at least editing for women like I think I learned a kind of protective measure in that like I didn't really want to give much of myself to that audience because I saw really quickly like the ways they would use it what do you think you were holding back basically like personal everything (laughs) you know (laughs) I didn't want them to like know much about me Mm -hmm. um and part of that was like I thought I still think this like I think I sounded more authoritative or at least professional when I wasn't like putting in these kind of cutesy asides of like my life and it's it's just like that transition from that experience to like the hairpin or Jezebel has been really interesting to me would you read the comments yeah, definitely. Even if it was kind of rough. Yeah, I mean, you know, like that first piece I wrote about in a science, like, I think you could still look at the comments and it's like the entire spectrum of like offensive comments you could get or like dismiss, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's all there. And that was like my day one while I was like at work at the parks department. So it was like very quickly like, oh, this is what this is, you know? I imagine that as that stuff started to come uh, you sort of took it personally. You like read all of it, yeah. Processed it. Mm-hmm. I it's I guess it's hard for me to imagine that you didn't also just stop like letting some of it in. Oh, I did that for sure. Yeah, I put up many walls that are still in place. <laughs> um, what and, are that, those? and that I think are really valuable. Like that I could probably like go through like the transitions in like learning not to care about what people say about you on the internet. But like the early one with Deadspin was like it was really easy to dismiss being called a cunt or a bitch or like being called ugly or like you don't have boobs, you know, like that kind of (laughs) shit. It was so easy to just like get over that. Like that actually was really simple to me. The more aggressive stuff of like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about because you're a woman or like because the stat is wrong or you interpreted this incorrectly that I took much more seriously. And I think in the long run, like that got to me more. Did it make you not want to be doing it? Because like here you are, you're like 
pretty young, mm-hmm. like right out of college, right? Yeah. Writing for this like very prominent site that's only getting more prominent and more readers and more authority. But then there's this part of it that seems pretty terrible. Yeah, I had plenty of moments of like doubt with it, but I also it was so much fun. Like Deadspin's a very fun place to when I started there it was three employees. It was Tommy, AJ and Barry. And we would write like, you know, one post an hour. It was like a much smaller operation. Like, you know, with that Brett Favre story broke and then a few other big stories broke that year and it felt very much like this is something I want to be a part of. And it felt in a lot of ways like cool to be the only female perspective there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm I'm interested in that cuz it both adds like obviously it adds a pretty interesting element to the site and it, it feels like there's something missing when it's not there. But it also feels like at, at least from the outside it looks like it would be such a fun role to play. Yeah, it was fun. Aside from everyone being ter- yeah. terrible. Like being uh unique in that way mm-hmm. seems kind of fun. Like Yeah, I mean my one of my favorite things to look back on now is like how the world reacted not sorry the world how how the internet reacted to the Brett Favre story and really early on it was treated by ESPN and by a lot of sports outlets as a lewd story about Brett Favre and also as like this kind of invasion of his privacy and no one was really saying like this is actually a story about workplace harassment you know (laughs) and it was interesting to be able to kind of like raise my hand and be like actually like this is like what's happening here is that Jen Sturger was harassed by someone that she didn't want to like have any anything to do with really <laughs> and she shut him down and that kind of perspective is not always there and it's important to have it um i also think i have two brothers and i grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of boys and i'm kind of like i grew up a tomboy and i yeah. was used I, I felt comfortable and not everyone would i think but there was an element of like little sister to it that you know i had to grow out of eventually <laughs> how'd you grow out of it i don't know <laughs> i was there for a year and a half, and then AJ uh, took over Gawker and asked me to be his managing editor, and I felt like I was completely unqualified to do it, and he kind of said, you don't say no to something like this. Like, this is the moment that you try it anyway. That um, was your first instinct, was like, no, I'm not ready? Yeah, totally. I remember him like chatting me and being like, like, I want to hire a woman as my deputy, but I can't think of anyone. Like, Do you have any ideas? And I was like giving him names. And finally, he was like, what about you? You know, <laughs> uh, But it was not my instinct. And I didn't really have editing or management on my mind. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in that moment. Like, here you are, you've kind of like landed this great gig. You're sort of getting better. Uh, you're on like a pretty big stage writing this stuff. Like, And then there's like this other track put in front of you, which is like writing, uh, editing, managing, uh, sort of more behind the scenes, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had a lot of people on who faced that fork and, and went pretty like firmly in the writing path i'm just interested in in how how you made that decision i don't even know how i made the decision really i mean part of it was like i had a lot of trust in aj as an editor and a visionary if you will and i was really excited about what he wanted to do with gawker and being a part of that seemed really like something that you can't really walk away from i also felt like i still feel this way about like these kind of transitions or moments where you have to like choose x or y it's like if the only reason to walk away from something is that it's going to be hard, you know, that's like a cop-out. <laughs> right, yeah. But it did mean writing less. Yeah, it did. You're not doing the thing that you wanted to be doing. Yeah, I guess I I went into that job thinking I would still be writing, and it quickly became a, ma- a management job that, like, if I wanted to write, it had to do it on the side. Uh, and I got used to it. Maybe too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I need to be honest. I don't actually even understand what that job is. The managing editor job? Or, yeah. yeah. The managing editor at Gawker. Like, what did you actually do all day? 
Um, I assigned stories to our writers and I developed features with our writers. Uh, so it was a lot. I mean, you know, what does it look like on a day to day? It looks like you're G chatting and saying dumb jokes to your friends, basically. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I basically like develop stories with the writers. And I don't know. How did you get a feel for doing that? Like if you've only been blogging for, I don't know, how would it have been like a year? A year and a half, yeah. A year and a Not half. Not very much time and at all. <laughs> now you're like coming up with story ideas for a bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. How do you figure out how to do that? You just do it. You just do it. <laughs> AJ is like an interesting manager in that he doesn't, if you're going to fail, you're going to fail. You know, he like sets up the parameters for in which you can succeed. And that Gawker, that meant like we had this amazing writing staff and this huge platform and like all this freedom. And if you can't really like figure out how to use that... <laughs> By basically, <laughs> not gonna work. So I learned, I guess. Do you like being the boss? I do. Yeah, I'm still learning how to be a boss. <laughs> Again, like even at Gawker, it was a mostly male staff, and at Deadspin, I worked with all men, and at Hairpin, I worked like with Gia. So now I have this staff of almost all women, and that's like been a transition in itself. Let's talk about the hairpin. Mm-hmm. You're a dead sprint for like a year and a half, mm-hmm. writing about sports. AJ makes you the godfather offer, and, <laughs> and you go do the managing editor thing at, at Gawker. And then uh, how did the hairpin happen? I was at Gawker for about a year, and then I went back to Deadspin as managing editor for a, like a few months. And a few months into that, I got drinks with Corey Sika, and it was like this weird timing thing where he said, you know, Edith has decided she kind of wants to take a break from the hairpin, and would you be interested? And at first I was like, I'm the worst person for that job. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, <laughs> you are. But that's why you might be good at it. Uh, why would you be bad for that job? I worked in sports writing, you know, like it wasn't like this natural transition to this magical female corner of the internet, really. It didn't seem like a natural fit to me. But the more I thought about it, the more it seemed like something I couldn't really walk away from. It was never going to come up in that way again. The only real reason I would say no to this is like, because it's harder than what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> and that didn't really seem like a fair reason to say no to something. There's another element with that job, too, where, like, you've been working at Deadspin, which had this kind of established voice and was growing and trying to figure out some new version of itself. And same thing for Gawker. But the hairpin, the hairpin was like one person's baby. Yeah. So what was that like to sort of, <laughs> to sort of like, adopt someone's kid? On my notes here, I have step parent. Totally. Well, I was the evil stepmother. That's exactly what I was. I didn't That's say anything about evil. I'm, no, I was though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was hard. It was really hard. I, Edith created like a perfectly formed product in the hairpin, and her voice was like so. It you know it is still in many ways the hairpin. You know to bring it back to that idea of like how I kind of learned to protect myself, like not give myself to the internet that much. I learned pretty early on with the hairpin that I didn't have that instinct that like the share all instinct I guess mm-hmm. um, and I think that's important at a site like that to make it more conversational and to make yourself easily approachable and that was like the hard transition for me there uh, I loved working with writers and developing features and I, it was like literally like you can put anything on the internet today what is it going to be you know right. <laughs> like that's what every day was like at the hairpin and at first it was a little bit like paralyzing like Just the, like, lack of constraints? Yeah, like, when you have that much freedom, what do you do with it, you know? And, like, figuring that out was... And it really was, like, you go into an office or you're, like, sitting at home? I worked at home quite a bit. We had an office, and now they're also in a new office. That's great. But I I spent a lot of time at home, yeah, alone. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just, like, you're, like, yeah, waking up in the morning, like, Opening a box, yeah, Yeah. looking at it and saying, now what, kind of. (laughs) Right. Um, But with this group of people who had really come to, like see this as their home on the internet Mm -hmm. 
it's like you like your I don't know what the metaphor is now, but and like, I burned it down. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, why do you think you're the evil stepmom? <laughs> this is tough to talk about. <laughs> The commenters didn't love me at the hairpin. I'll just leave. Uh, you know, maybe I can leave it at that. I got a lot of emails and comments and stuff about basically how I was like ruining their corner of the internet, and it was difficult. It's like <laughs> mean in a totally different way. Did it uh, last the whole time you were there? No, I mean you you won them over. I don't know that I won them over. I think one thing I you know I think about a lot with the hairpin is like if like a site like that of that size and like of that community like requires a commenting base to thrive. Do you think that it does? I don't know. We had great traffic, like, not to think about it in a metrics way, but... Well, I mean, like, your job is kind of a, to yeah, think like about it, it in a metrics way, right? You know, we grew traffic there, and we did other things that I think are really great, but if you think about... If you look at a site and you see, like, zero comments or, like, three comments, mm-hmm. do you think of that as a healthy website? You know, I think about that a lot. Did you basically decide while you were there, okay, I'm going to value the things that I think are important content-wise over making sure that this community feels like appeased yeah i mean i think that also a commenting community's assumption that it needs to be appeased is like utter bullshit like (laughs) i don't think that's fair i think that you have editors for a reason and there's a funny like kind of recurring instinct on the internet now that if you don't agree with something someone's written then it's not fair or relevant or that it shouldn't exist and I, I just, I think you can disagree with something and it can still exist in full form, you know? Would you fight those battles in the comments? No, not really. I would email with people quite a bit. My favorite hairpin commenter interaction was uh, these two women who worked together. Um, this was like a few months in when, like, I think it was apparent that, like, the site was changing, like, necessarily. And it was when I was getting a lot of, like, pushback. And I got this email. It was two coworkers having this uh, long back and forth throughout the workday about how I was ruining the hairpin. And at the end of the chain, it said, we should probably just forward this to her because it'll be really useful. <laughs> and then it was like, hey, Emma, like, we just uh, had this back and forth. Like, we thought you might like to see it. My friend likens this to like the three-way call in Mean Girls, you know, when <laughs> yeah. they're like, and you're like, I didn't want to well, see this. Like, the last thing I want to see. <laughs> keep it to yourself. Like, that's fine. How do you respond to that? I responded nicely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, are you, like you, you don't have an urge to just be like, you don't need to comment here anymore. Yeah, sure. I did. I, I lost patience with that at a certain point. And I talked with Jess Cohen about this quite a bit. Like, Jess was the second editor at Jezebel. Right. It's hard. That's like the expectations are for a certain voice and if you're not reaching that or uh satisfying it it's not going to go over well (laughs) but also if you try and do that like if you try and mimic what came before you you're just not going to do it as well because it was somebody else yeah and i thought about that a lot because edith is unmimicable you know like she is the a a unique voice on the internet that like you were about to say unicorn yeah i was (laughs) yeah sorry um and i wasn't gonna be that no matter how hard i tried all of a sudden, when you were editing the hairpin, there was more stuff about sports than it had ever been on the hairpin, for mm-hmm. sure. And there was like a pretty heavy emphasis on like hip hop. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, that was great. That was a good hairpin for me. But I, I'm interested in also how you thought about that tension, like not just sharing p- parts of your personal life, mm-hmm. but sharing your tastes. That's a pretty like open ticket it's a, a site for women i guess is like right, how you would yeah. describe the hairpin and I, I wonder and certainly with jezebel too like how much is it about what you personally are interested in and how much is it about what you think people are interested in good question um i mean the hairpin i it was 
it was heavier on the former, I think, because it was just me and Gia. You know, like you don't have a staff that can like day to day. It was our interests that like we could bring to the table, basically, because we weren't going to like profess to be experts in like C-sections or something, you know. <laughs> um, and I actually met I had drinks with the new hairpin editors like not that long ago. And we were talking about that that like panic moment of like, you know, you have like this open draft WordPress draft on your screen and you're like, so I just have to write about what I'm interested in. And then you're like, wait, what am I interested in? You know, like, do I have interests? Am I interesting? Like, total breakdown moment. <laughs> like, ripping out your hair. Like, like going through, like, your filing cabinet. Like, I know there's something in here. <laughs> like, at magazines on your coffee table. Yeah, like, at the hairpin, I think that direction was more natural because it was necessary. It was a small staff, and uh, there was only so much we could do in a given day. Right, and you were, like, uh, waking up in the morning in-house by yourself and right. opening the box and it was same like, life same house like right. <laughs> same background nothing had changed right and then Jezebel it's a whole different ball game and okay so you were at, at a place where you were sitting at home mm-hmm. and uh, you had this baby and people were mad at you and yeah. forwarding you yeah evil uh, stepmother in her cave evil stepmother <laughs> uh, we've used so many terrible metaphors <laughs> it was a donkey kicking and um, <laughs> this was your thing this was your, like your life was that site I assume it's mm-hmm. like all day, every day, thinking about the thing. And then you get an opportunity to go to Jezebel, mm-hmm. get a staff of a bunch of people, and a huge audience. Yes. And, and inheriting, if if the hairpin was this small, loyal, overly emotional audience, uh-huh. um, how do you think about, you know, I don't know, what's, what's our metaphor here? Like taking over a whole school or something? I don't know. Yeah. That transition, what was it like? You know, it's been comfortable because I'm used to Gawker. I was joking about it. it feels like I like was away for summer break or something and then came back. I mean, I still know everyone there. A lot of the editorial staff is very much the same as when I left. The audience is one I became more familiar with through the hairpin. Uh, it's now just a little bit more amplified and like, the, you know, the spotlight's a little brighter, basically. But it was not that difficult. Uh, or it hasn't been. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, how long have you been in the job now? Two months. I took five weeks off between jobs. Oh, Highly nice. recommended. What, what did you do with your five weeks off? <laughs> Not much at all. It was great. Did you avoid the internet on your five weeks off? Well, you know what was interesting is like how quickly the internet forgot that I was like, like I didn't get email after like two weeks. Like there were no, like I would just look at, I would be refreshing my email and it would just be like spam or like promotional things <laughs> and never like, we need your help or like, I need this answer. You know, like there was no urgency to it. So you, all right. So you took your like internet abstinence. Nobody cared. Yeah. It's great. Jumped back into it. <laughs> and now you have a staff of... Good question. 13, 12 or 13? It's a lot of people. Yeah. That's How's it going? It's great. It's really fun. The staff right now is great. We just had a big party at Nick Denton's last night. But it's really fun. We're like building out all these subsites. And when I think about like growing Jezebel, I kind of think about it like growing laterally because it is very large and has this huge audience. Um and I don't think you have to like reshape that audience. I just think you can like keep adding to the site and give it more like sections, I think. Yeah. What kind of sections do you think are right to be added? Well, we I hired uh, Julianne Shepard, Escobedo Shepard, as our culture editor, and she's going to run a pop culture subsite. We're going to have a kind of women's health and science subsite, a wedding subsite, a travel subsite, a kind of nerdy history 
deep dive weirdo subsite um, that I think will be great. Gotta have your weirdo subsite. And then probably a beauty subsite, which I'm still trying to <laughs> conceive of. <laughs> if you have any ideas, let me know. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a world I'm, I have a lot of knowledge of. Yeah, yeah. yeah Thank I'm, you. I'm very up. I, I'll t- afterwards, I'll tell you about it. My, <laughs> okay, my great. thoughts Off on your, record, yeah. So how, is that, how has it been navigating that bigger stage? How, how is it doing the same sort of work uh, for more people and, and how have you been received if if that hairpin transition was kind of rocky like how's mm-hmm. it been and again I'm interested in like if the hairpin started having all like tons of hip hop videos and like yeah. uh, sort of like inside baseball literal inside baseball talk how much of you is in Jezebel well I, don't, I think like the changes are going to be really gradual but I think the people that I've brought on are going to be like part of that, that change like someone like Gia Tolentino our features editor who I worked with at the hairpin has kind of like this brilliant historical writerly mind. So I think a lot of the features she brings on, like this piece we published today about the original, quote unquote, original booty queen who was like paraded around Europe in the 1800s, 1700s, is like a kind of this, it's like reading a scholarly paper that's like outfitted for the internet, basically. Yeah. Uh, and it has this, also happens to have this great news peg with Kim Kardashian. A lot of, I, I spent a lot of time reading Jezebel this week. Yeah. It's a lot of Kardashian. We had a big Kardashian week. Um, <laughs> shout out Chris Jenner. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, it was it was everything. Aaron Gloria Ryan, new managing editor, came up with the phrase "ass wars," <laughs> which at least was like kind of something light we could do with it because it was like after story number six, you're kind of like, all right, I guess we're still doing this. Got to keep doing it. <laughs> yeah. So I think you'll see more of that from Gia. I think Julianne's pop culture stuff is like already very much present on the site and is she has this kind of like like encyclopedic knowledge of pop culture that I always say like when I'm reading her pieces I end up opening like 10 Wikipedia pages cuz I'm like trying to keep up with her brain, you know. <laughs> right. But she's just smarter than anyone on pop culture and I also brought on this writer Clo- Clover Hope who uh came from Vibe and um has been writing about music for about 10 years and we have a very strong music core right now, so yeah, you will see more hip hop music videos probably. <laughs> There's been some stuff. It's like some stuff about like this is like a golden age for women writers. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I think a lot of women are writing on the internet right now. <laughs> okay, a lot of women are writing on the internet right now. Uh-huh. Um, it feels to me like there is a quite public conversation about women writing on the internet uh, that maybe is more sort of like constant and ongoing than it has ever been before. Yeah, what's Jezebel's role in that? I don't. I mean, I'm I'm still getting I'm still like getting a hold of how basically of Jezebel's influence and like what it means to people. I mean, not used to the moment of being like, I, you know, I edit Jezebel and like the face lights up and it's like, I've been reading it for years. Like that's like still very new to me. So I'm still getting a hold on that and like how to like wield that influence, I guess. You know, if you talk about like the golden age of women writers, I think what's happening a lot more is like women are leading these conversations and like women based or focused stories are much are like more often leading the news cycle each week. Mm-hmm. And so being in a place where you you are responsible for like a definitive take or, you know, round the clock coverage, it's a lot to like consider. (laughs) And it's also like, you know, another transition from Hairpin to Jezebel has been recognizing how much that audience has expanded. I remember at one point early on being like asking Aaron Ryan if if we were too late to do this piece about basic bitches. And she was kind of like, Emma, like our audience isn't like New York bloggers, you know, (laughs) Um, like, of course not, you know, it's not too late. So that's like an adjustment I'm making still, um, kind of understanding how broad this audience is and 
how to best deal with that power, I guess. Is it tricky to both sort of speak to the broadest margins of the audience and also to New York City media people? Like, uh, is bridging that gap tricky? Yeah, I think so. Um, It's different. It's like you can't assume that kind of background. You know, I've been amazed kind of covering the Lena Dunham backlash stories as they've come and gone, uh, seeing how kind of far reaching those are. Like, those don't just resonate with like our New York blogging set. Lena Dunham's like a pretty important, generally like a pretty important beat for you guys, I feel like. Sure. (laughs) No? (laughs) Like, there's been, uh, there's been like, uh, there's been a lot of Lena Dunham on Jezebel. Yeah. And it seems like, I don't know, maybe the tone of the coverage has changed a little bit. I don't know. I thought the latest wave was like very funny in a way. Like I was just, I was like, this isn't going to be a thing. And then it was like such a thing. It, it did seem wild that it became a thing. Yeah. I was kind of shocked that it became a thing. Yeah. It's like we're digging in like the corners of our like bags for like the next like <laughs> right. kernel of something you can throw at her. You know, I don't know if you read Gia's piece on it, but it was it was nice for a side like Jezebel to be able to kind of sit back on that story for a second and not jump on like the kind of bloggy coverage right away and say like, what do we actually think? You know, (laughs) I want to embrace that freedom a little bit because like, of course, we're a news blog and we have to be up on what the internet is talking about every day. But the idea of like pressing or pushing that that take, I think, is what like clogs up the internet quite a bit these days. Needing the take. Yeah. Or like being first to the take, the good feminist take of the day or something. <laughs> Especially when whether or not you're first, yours is going to be definitive anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's like more pressure to get it right. Yeah. And and one thing, I, it's nice with the writers to be able to say like, well, actually, like, what do you think? You know, like not like, what do you think the internet should think you think? <laughs> right. Which I think is a, is a thing that happens a lot with feminist or women's internet right now is like, there are these kind of like written in rules about like fair reactions or like what is like the proper conscientious take on something. And I think what ends up happening there is like we're writing these like kind of form letters about it's like, you know, the Internet today is mad about X. Like, right. here's what I think. Here's what the Internet thinks. Like Everyone's can, right. You, right. And everyone agrees. And, yeah. and you can end up sort of like predicting the responses before they come. Exactly. Um, I was talking with a writer today about I think like how like online feminism has like more and more rules lately, like. Um, there's only so much you can say without setting off a certain corner of the internet and you know claiming bias or claiming like insensitivity or something. And while that's happening, like while online our opinions and like takes or whatever are getting more constrained in a way, personal feminism, like face to face conversations with women, are like looser <laughs> and like more complicated and don't really go by any rules. And like on Jezebel, sometimes you'll see it written into pieces of like. Like, some people might think X, but, like, I think Y, you know? Like, it's like you're protecting against that reaction a little bit. Right. And you don't do that in person. Like, you just say Say, what you think. Say what you you think. Is there a way to bring that to the site? Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be a process, but I think it means, like, you know, Jezebel commenters are really hard on writers, and there's that element, and then there's also, like, the 4chan element of reactions to, to Jezebel pieces. Like, one of our writers got completely targeted by 4chan this week, had to file a police report. And with all those different elements, like, you're going to adjust your approach to, like, your online self, right? Yeah. And that's really hard. It's like you're writing to, like, this person's this, – your idea of this person's sensitivity, and then you're also writing so that you don't get <laughs> pizzas delivered to your house, you know, by 4chan. And when all that is, like, applied, kind of what is left? Like, what do you feel comfortable saying? 
uh, and it'd be nice to get to a point where we can say whatever we want, but it's really hard to ask that of writers. Yeah. And that's something that you sort of like intimately understand yourself. I mean, you sure. can't ask it because you uh, went through that yourself. Yeah. And I still feel that pressure. Is there a way for you as the editor of Jezebel to make it more safe to do that? I don't like, really think so. Is that is that just like a utopian idea that's never going to happen? Like, is no, the internet I mean, going to always that... be like a dark, shitty place? Yes. <laughs> the internet is really bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's step one. <laughs> just acknowledging that and that we all exist on it anyway. <laughs> the ideal with Jezebel is getting to a point where, like, you can say this might not go over as well with our commenters or with, like, the MRAs on the internet, but it's what I think. So who gives a fuck? Like, if you, like, really believe in what you're writing and like what the site's mission is and what our approach to everything is and if you have a supportive staff and supportive co-workers like ideally you get to a point where you just say but i think that you know like it's like okay i get that you don't think that right like i've, I've been joking about <laughs> i might actually do this but installing a like fake uh jezebel and buds woman who takes everything personally because <laughs> <laughs> like so many you know so many of the, our critical comments are like as a blank, <laughs> this really didn't speak to me. And it's like, well, I wasn't like speaking for you. You know, yeah, <laughs> like was... I'm a writer. <laughs> I think this. You don't have to think it. And I think that's the ideal. But I think it, like I said, like there's so many kind of checks in place that like writers internalize, like I've internalized over the years, that mm-hmm. it's hard to get to that like no filter point. Yeah. I wonder if, if what you're saying there, like if you can name it, uh, if that's part of the way of getting there is like you are going to react this way, mm-hmm. but I'm going to say it anyway. Right. At least, at least if you can take that first. But then you kind of, I think that's a waste of time as a writer to be like, I acknowledge how you're going to react to this. You know. Yeah. Like it'd be nice if we just all acknowledge that like we think about things differently and like we have different background. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm getting into my dream internet scenario. No, but... I'm inter- <laughs> I'm interested in your dream internet scenario. I don't know. I, I No Twitter. I'm done with Twitter. I think Twitter has to go. Are you just going to give it up? I mean, no, I'm still going to use Twitter because I am stuck with Twitter. <laughs> but Twitter is, is bad. It's a bad place, I think. It's a it's a bad place. It also makes me feel fucking terrible about myself. Yeah, right? Every, I, it's like anytime I kill it for my life for a couple of days. Yeah. You feel better? Yeah, I feel better. Yeah. I feel better. I mean, that's, I, I'm going to think about that this weekend and just not look at Twitter. <laughs> it's it's like, it's healthy. Yeah. I mean, and, my, my whole approach with Twitter is like, I think, I think everyone should stop tweeting. Like that's step one to like us killing Twitter. But if you're going to tweet, you use it for promotion. You don't use it to express opinions <laughs> or use it for dumb jokes. <laughs> dumb jokes and PR. That should be yeah, the entirety of Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. That works. Yeah. But also it would be great if like the like four or five things that were that like the four or five best jokes and the uh, like couple of things that I would like to see PR wise, it would be great if I could just uh, see those. Just see those. Yeah. That, like, I mean, you could you could completely pare your feed down. But I don't think you can <laughs> because it's like you know like you, the dumb just like slips in. Yeah, yeah. Who knows when the good dumb joke yeah, is going to come? That's true. And also, who knows when the good dumb joke is going to come? So you have to just keep. You have there. to keep looking. Oh, it's so awful, and I I keep it on the side of my screen, and I can like. Sometimes when it's not on the side of my screen, I can feel my eyes like drifting yeah, over. Totally. And it's like like uh, web pages like take a while to load. And I'm like, oh, I'll just look at that for a second. Yeah. It's fucking terrible. And it's just the same shit on loop. Well, it must be crazy too with Jezebel because they're like, at any time you can just dial in to like the fucking at replies of Jezebel. Oh yeah, those are great. And it's just like yeah. at, at any point there are, I assume, dozens and dozens of people 
talking about what you're doing. Yeah, we have some like really dedicated trolls where it's kind of like it's either like something like some critique that has nothing to do with the story that's gone out or like shut up you dumb cunts you know <laughs> like it's like someone is sitting there with like copy paste just like ready for it or like there's a bot set up that's just like this is important you know <laughs> i, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh your writing which you are not doing never no no more writing make you sad? <laughs> yeah actually this week um i did a reading for the first time i've never done this before where you like sit up in a bar and read something did you read your poetry yeah, exactly. Yeah, my beat poetry. No, I did like a little a little rap, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, but I I said yes to doing this reading without really thinking of it. And then um, the organizer was like, so what do you want to read? And I was like, oh, I can't read like my tweets. You know, <laughs> like, oh, I have to read something I wrote. And when I looked at what I had, you know, like the, the longest thing I've written in the past year was a Sports Illustrated story about a basketball player. It's not really like <laughs> like bar reading material. <laughs> It's a good story, had, <laughs> But I had to go back to, like, when I was writing full-time to really, like, find something. And it was kind of a mental check. Like, I haven't given myself that space recently. Do you think you're going to get it soon? No. <laughs> it's weird that it's, like, easier to carve out that time when it's, like, a freelance assignment, you know? Like, with the SI thing. Uh, but it feels like a distraction from, like, site management to me. Like, ideally, I think I'd write, like, one long thing a, pe- a, a month on Jezebel or something. Because, yeah, I miss it. And I also think when you're not writing, you get out of practice and, you know, you're not going to, like, easily turn around good shit. And you should. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Sports Illustrating thing, you wrote about Brianna Stewart. Yeah. Uh, who's, like, the best college basketball player in the country. Mm-hmm. There's a lot in there or some in there about you as a basketball player, which made me feel better for the times that you have wildly outplayed me <laughs> in basketball. Um, how did I mean, how does that story fit into your life now like is that something you pitched is that no i didn't pitch that i'd met the sports illustrated uh, managing editor chris stone through tommy craggs and jack dickey who was a former deadspin intern who now writes for si and i met him and uh he said like they were interested in me contributing a few things they actually tried to get a few things going but the brianna stewart thing just like the timing lined up well and again it was one of those things where i felt like i had the necessary like authority and background that I could like do it without it kind of like <laughs> taking over a month of my life, right, you know. Right, right. And also had grown up like you know worshiping and fearing Gino Ariyama, so it was like a no brainer. <laughs> but it was very cool. It was like very much a dream of mine to write a Sports Illustrated feature, and I managed to do it. <laughs> and when you finished it, did you want to do more? Yeah, I did. It felt like such a like a familiar speed that I hadn't like been in in a while. Um, like reporting, you know, transcribing, kind of like piecing together like the puzzle of a story. Like you do that as an editor, but it makes so much more sense when it's your own work. I think because it, it just it's like oh right, like this goes there obviously instead of like I think this could go here and then we could move. You know, like the kind of puzzle making that you do when you're editing. I really liked it and I would love to do more of it. I don't know when I'll have time to do it. Is it something that like, I don't know, down the line, you see yourself doing more? Yeah, I'd like to. Do you think you can do both? Or if you're on this path of editing, I don't know, is that going to, like, does writing fit into your life? Do you think that's, like, an either-or choice, I guess? I think that I haven't made it fit into my, like, editing life, and that's, like, my own fault. Like, I think if I, if I were, like, more disciplined and not as exhausted at the end of every day, I could be like, okay, from 8 to 10 p.m., I'm going to write, you know? Or, like, every Sunday from this hour I'm going to write instead of being like a hungover blog blob, for example. Um, Like that would be nice. And I would like to get to a point where I can 
think about it as a scheduled thing. But it's never been that. Like, writing is, has never been a scheduled thing to me. So it's hard to make it one, I think. Yeah. It, it's hard to make it feel like exercise. Yeah. Yeah. Which I don't do anymore either, so. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I completely stopped doing that. In the, last, the last two months have been serious serious uh well you know raising a child yeah counts, right yeah I, i'm not sure how you can ever do it basically like <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. raising a child is is my version of editing right. Jezebel, and i don't know how <laughs> i don't know how i'm supposed to write slash ever go for a run again right yeah you just said something that was interesting to me it was, it was about like not being able to find the time in your day and getting home and being fucking exhausted mm-hmm. i feel like there was this like narrative and maybe it's true maybe it's not i don't know there's this narrative of of particularly editors at gawker like uh you could do it for a while and then you like burn the fuck out yeah you sure couldn't do it anymore the grind was too much but you keep going back keep taking like new and different jobs has gawker changed has like the internet changed are you like uh some sort of like superhuman that can (laughs) not burn out in ways that other people do like i think gawker's getting bigger i think that is a big part of it is that i don't feel like it's as straight as like straight of a hustle as i did when i first started where i was constantly aware of my own numbers and like how i stacked up against other writers and and if I was like still a worthwhile metric for the company, you know, as it's gotten bigger, as the audiences have got and they've gotten so much bigger and the staffs have gotten so much bigger since I started, which is really only four years ago, that pressure has like been laid off a little bit. The most stressful year of my life is when I was like under AJ at Gawker, where I think I went through a bit of a like hazing, like a hazing ritual, like being a new editor at Gawker. Like you learn very quickly, you learn on your feet and you like go through these kind of like I can identify like four or five different like panic mornings of like we're fucked, you know, <laughs> or like I'm fucked, I'm gonna get fired. And it took a while to get over that and feel like secure there. And I I've been joking lately, I, I kind of feel like post stress with work. <laughs> like I, it's really hard for me to get stressed about stuff. And a part of me misses that because I think it like is what gets you like hustling and thinking differently and, and stuff. I think I'll get back to it very quickly. Sounds healthy, though. But I think it's a little bit of a honeymoon with starting Jezebel where it's like everything's fine. Like, I love this shit, you know, and that's it, like the entire thing's going to come crashing down in a few months. Uh, but it does. It feels better. And it feels like as the company is getting bigger and, you know, we're moving to this new office in the spring and shit, there's a little bit more breathing room. Did it seem like something you can do forever, or not forever, but for a long time? Right now it does. Like, ask me tomorrow, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's not really a joke that every Gawker editor comes in thinking, I'll last a year, you know? <laughs> I'm not putting any timeline on it yet. It feels very new still, so. How old are you? 26. Jesus. So you're 26, and you've had, like, these five super distinct jobs. Yeah, it's very odd. It's wild. Yeah. I might be cursed. Maybe I'll never stay in a job longer than a year. (laughs) Maybe. but I mean, you must be kind of aspiring to do so. Yeah, I'm ready to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Like, if you can think about, like, 10 years from now, do you think you'll burn out on the internet at some point? Or do you think you can can keep moving around to different pockets and finding things that are interesting, like sports or general interest at Gawker and women's sites? Like, can, Can you keep finding those things on the internet that feel kind of daunting and you feel like you have to do just because they're hard. Yeah, I think so. But I also think that the internet will continue to get worse. <laughs> and I'm not confident that like it'll be a place I want to work forever. I don't know what else there will be like at a certain point. And it's in, like whenever I have these conversations with people, it, we always come to the point where it's like, but who knows what the internet will look like in six months or like 12 months? Like maybe BuzzFeed will own all of us at that point. So I'm not sure like the 10 years from now question is like very much like 
will Gawker exist or like will websites exist or will we all be publishing on Medium? You know, <laughs> yeah, I think it's hard to like say no to big, daunting, fun ideas, and I'm comfortable saying yes to them right now. <laughs> well, Emma, thank you very much for uh, taking the time. I appreciate you coming in after your hard week. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for the beers. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks so much to my guest, Emma Carmichael, coming in after a long week. Appreciate the time. We'll see you next week. Bye.